0: Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com, and this is anti-war news for Wednesday, September 21st, 2022. First story at the top of Antiwar.com today. Russian-backed authorities in Ukraine announced ref- planned referendums to join Russia. So on Tuesday, authorities in Russian-controlled areas of Ukraine announced that they will be holding referendums on joining Russia, a sign that Moscow may be escalating its military operations in Ukraine. So, referendums will be held in the self declared Donetsk and Luhansk republics in the Donbass region and in the oblasts of Kherson and Zaporizhia. Russia, as things stand now, they currently control about 95% of Kherson and a significant portion of Zaporizhia. Um, So, I put in a map. In the story here from South Front, and if you're watching, you see the areas highlighted in red are all areas that these referendums will apply to. These are the Russian-controlled areas, Uh, so it's a pretty significant piece of territory. Um, And it signals, again, that Russia looks like Russia is escalating in the wake of this Ukrainian counteroffensive in Kharkiv, where Ukraine uh, gained a decent amount of territory, recaptured a, a good amount of territory. And uh, Putin was set to deliver a major speech on Tuesday, along with his uh, defense minister Sergei Shoigu, but that was postponed. He was expected to discuss the referendums and possibly announce some sort of escalation. But according to reports I read, it's it's it, that speech is going to uh, air early Wednesday in Russia. So actually, just probably a few hours after this, I post this episode, uh, we might hear a big announcement from Putin about an escalation, but uh, reacting to the planned referendums that were all announced on the same day. uh, Again, I don't know if I said that they will be held from September 23rd to September 27th. So over a few days, uh, they're going to be held here. Reacting to the news, Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov said, quote, peoples of the respective territories should decide their fate, end quote. So Ukrainian foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba he slammed the referendum plans saying that they wouldn't change anything and that Ukraine would continue to attempt to recapture the territories. He said, quote, Ukraine has every right to liberate its territories and will keep liberating them, whatever Russia has to say, end quote. So again, this comes after Ukraine's counteroffensive in the Kharkiv region. And since then, uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin has been under pressure to escalate what he has called a special military operation. He's framed the war, the invasion, as a special military operation as opposed to a full-scale war. But he's being pressured to escalate and mobilize for war, which would likely involve a nationwide draft. And the next story on AntiWar.com is... Related and is another sign that Russia is preparing an escalation. Russia's state Duma, which is the lower house of of parliament, approved a bill that it toughens punishment for Russian military personnel during times of mobilization, another sign that Russia could be preparing to escalate. So far, Putin has rejected calls to mobilize for war, Uh, But he's also, you know, said, hinted last week in comments, he said that the war could be escalated. So this bill that was passed by the state Duma, it increases punishments for Russian soldiers during the period of mobilization or martial law in wartime or in the context of an armed conflict or combat operations. What's significant about this bill is that it introduces the terms mobilization, martial law. And wartime to the Russian Criminal Code, um, and it increases punishments over several sen- in, for several uh, scenarios, including desertion. So, this law, if a Russian soldier abandons their unit for more than one month, they could face up to ten years in prison, which is up from five years under the current law. So, I just had to mention, you know, what U.S. law is like on this issue. And under the current law, desertion is a military crime. And troops could face up to five years in prison for the offense. And during times of war, technically on the books, U.S. soldiers could potentially face the death penalty for desertion, uh, but that has not been enforced since World War II. And I linked to the story about the execution of Eddie Slavic, who was a uh, American soldier who was executed by firing squad for desertion during World War II. Uh, But the harshest punishment under this Russian state Duma bill would be for looting in wartime, which could result in up to 15 years in prison. So, again, this is just another sign that we might see an escalation. Um, The Russia's invasion was preceded by the state Duma passing a resolution that called for Putin to recognize the independence of those breakaway republics in the Donbass, which Putin did just a couple days before launching the invasion. Um, so again, you know, that speech that we're going to sometime on Wednesday, probably early Wednesday, we're going to see Putin possibly announce uh, something pretty serious. And it seems like that this is what the U.S. has wanted because the U.S. has shown no uh, sign that it has, well, it hasn't pursued a diplomatic solution to the war at all. It's pretty much abandoned diplomacy with Russia Anthony Blinken has only spoken to Sergei Lavrov once since Russia invaded way back in February, and that was about a prisoner swap. It wasn't even about the war. Um, and then we know that report of Boris Johnson traveling to Ukraine to sabotage any chance of, of a peace deal that, that almost happened between Russia and Ukraine back in April. And then after that, the U.S. signed on this $40 billion aid bill and said that their goal is to weaken Russia. So this is what uh, the result of that is. Is unfortunately, it looks like escalation, no real end in sight for this war, and a lot more Ukrainians and Russians are going to die. All right, the next one. This is from Kyle Anzalone and Connor Freeman at the Libertarian Institute. The Senate looks to enforce oil price caps with secondary sanctions. So two U.S. senators have introduced a new bi- have introduced a new bill that would sanction any company buying Russian oil at a price beyond a cap set by Russian leaders. So this is really meant to complement the G7 plan, that this has been really pushed by Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, to put a price cap on Russian oil. And the G7 and the U.S., they're saying they want to implement this in December. But Russia has said it will retaliate, and if it retaliates by cutting oil production and cutting off these countries that want to implement this cap, I mean, it's just going to send oil prices just soaring higher than we've even uh, seen before, it seems like. Um, so they're still pushing this idea. And this bill that's meant to complement that ban was introduced by Senators Chris Van Hollen. He's a Democrat from Maryland. And Pat Toomey, a Republican from Pennsylvania in both Lawmakers sit on the bank committee, which oversees sanctions policy. Um, All right, so the next one, this is another one from Kyle and Connor over at the Libertarian Institute. This is interesting. This is two new polls. uh, Polling from Morning Consultant and and Concerned Veterans for America show that at least a plurality of Americans are tired of interventionism. The results show that twice as many Americans want to send less aid to Ukraine than those who would support sending more. Meanwhile, only 17% of Americans are concerned about defending democracy around the globe, which is pretty uh, low. That's a pretty low number there. Um, So with that 17%, uh, the issue of upholding democracy was uh, not much of a concern. It ranked 11th behind drugs, climate, climate, immigration, terrorism, and the economic crisis. Um, so it's just interesting to see that it looks like there is uh, sort of a change in public opinion happening on this issue. And it said over 55% of the respondents opposed direct American military intervention in the war in Ukraine against Russia, while only 14% support fighting a war for Ukraine. So um, that's another good sign, I would say. And this just shows as things, as prices and, and people are dealing with uh, inf- inflation and everything, really, I think that the best thing we could hope for that could change this policy is just people getting fed up and seeing that we're sending $40 billion, $56 billion, spending at least. Now, if Biden gets the next aid package he's looking for, it's going to be $66 billion for Ukraine, spending it, it it on this war while Americans are dealing with uh, all these problems at home, thanks to this soaring inflation and, and gas prices and stuff. Um, but on that note, on intervention in Ukraine, I just want to mention our sponsor, How the West Brought War to Ukraine. It's a great book by Benjamin Abloh that details Western provocations against Russia since the end of the Cold War that have led to the current situation that we see today. And, you know, it's a really great analysis on everything. And really kind of the theme from some, a lot of the people that have endorsed the book is that if people don't understand this history, how are we going to end this? How are we going to get out of this? How are we going to avoid nuclear catastrophe? And I want to read what Gilbert Doctorow had to say about this book. And he is a Russia specialist based in Brussels. He's a historian. We run his stuff all the time at antiwar.com. He's really good at analyzing, um, Russia, NATO relations and, and things like that. And he says in the Ukraine proxy war between the United States, NATO, and Russia, we face a threat of nuclear escalation that could end human civilization. Ablo's book is essential reading for all who wish to understand this threat and why 30 years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, it has reemerged. So I thought that was just a good uh, little summary of why this book is so important and why understanding this issue is uh, something that m- more Americans uh, need to do because <laughs> if we want to get out of it and it's only $10, you could find the, the link in the description to buy the book. It's great. 60 to 70 pages. I read it in one shot, and it usually takes me a long time to read a book. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, the next news story here, more escalations uh, against China. So a White House official says that Biden's comments on defending Taiwan speak for themselves. So these comments, this was from the top Asia official on the White House's National Security Council. Kurt Campbell is his name. He said on Monday... That Biden's comments on defending Taiwan speak for themselves, and he rejected the characterization that the White House walked them back. Kurt Campbell said, quote, I do not believe that it is appropriate to call the remarks that came from the White House today as walking back the president's remarks, end quote. So Kurt Campbell, he is the National Security Council's coordinator for Indo-Pacific Affairs. Uh, He went on, quote, the president's remarks speak for themselves. I do think our policy has been consistent and is unchanged and will continue, end quote. So National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan on Tuesday, he also claimed that Biden's comments were not a change in policy and tried to downplay them, saying that the president was only answering a hypothetical question. But Biden's comments were the most explicit that he's made on this issue, when he was asked in this interview that aired on Sunday with 60 Minutes, if the U.S. would defend Taiwan, if China attacked, Biden said yes, if in fact there was an unprecedented attack. And, uh, and just to clarify, an unprecedented attack would be any major Chinese attack on Taiwan. Um, and when asked if that means... The U.S. men and women would defend Taiwan in the event of a Chinese invasion. Biden answered yes. And this was the fourth time of his presidency that he said this. This was really the most explicit in a sit-down interview. It was not some off-the-cuff remark. And after the interview aired, a White House spokesperson, this was the walk back. This was what some people said was the White House walking it back. But I didn't really think it was at the time. And it seems like I'm right because of what Kirk Campbell said. White House spokesperson said, quote, the president has said this before, including in Tokyo earlier this year. He also made clear then that our Taiwan policy hasn't changed. This remains true, end quote. So if you notice, that White House spokesperson didn't say, he doesn't mean that we would go to war with China over Taiwan. That's not what they said. Because the last time Biden said this this back in May, the White House did walk his comments back. They said that he meant The U.S. would provide Taiwan with weapons if China attacked not send troops. So that's a walk back. What the White House said this week is not, as Campbell made clear. So and despite what Campbell and Sullivan say, Biden's comments mark a significant shift away from the U.S. policy of strategic ambiguity for Taiwan. It's very significant uh, that, that he's saying this now explicitly. And the idea of the policy was to not say one way or the other, if the U.S. would intervene militarily, it's meant to deter both sides, China and Taiwan, from changing the status quo. And this policy was established after the U.S. severed diplomatic ties with Taiwan in 1979 to open up with China. All right, the next one here, more Taiwan. A U.S. Navy commander says that China is capable of blockading Taiwan. So this comes from the head of the U.S. Navy's 7th Fleet, which is based in Japan. Vice Admiral Carl Thomas, he said, quote, they have a very large Navy, and if they want to bully and put ships around Taiwan, they very much can do that, end quote. So the reason why I wanted to highlight this was because his comments came after China launched its largest ever military drills around Taiwan after Pelosi visited. And during those drills, they simulated a blockade and they closed down six areas around Taiwan as part of that simulated blockade. And it really showed how this is, you know, everybody thinks of what the US would do if China invades Taiwan. That's kind of the only, the only scenario that's put forward in, in media coverage and news coverage of this issue, really. But this is something China could do. It, and seems like they could do quickly, because um, they really launched these drills so fast, uh, is put a blockade around Taiwan as, as a way to get them to, uh, submit to what they want or, uh, whatever the case is. Um, and then what would the U S do? What would the West do responding to that? And now this guy, Thomas, the vice admiral head of the U S Navy's fleet, Navy U S Navy, seventh fleet. He said that this, uh, blockade, uh, it's non-kinetic and it would give kind of what they call the international community time to weigh their response. He said, quote, clearly, if they do something that's non-kinetic, which, you know, a blockade is less kinetic, then that allows the international community to weigh in and work together on how we're going to solve the, solve that challenge, end quote. Um, and another potential option for China, if it decides to take military action against Taiwan, short of a full-scale invasion, because it's also important to note that a full-scale invasion of Taiwan would be extremely difficult. It would have to be a major, major uh, amphibious invasion, bigger than anything we've seen in history. It would dwarf the size of the Allied invasion of uh, France on D-Day during World War II. Um, So another option if they wanted to take military action against Taiwan could potentially be to take Kinmen County, which is an archipelago on the southeastern coast of mainland China that is controlled by Taiwan. Because um, you would think, that if you look at the map here, the little islands literally on the coast of mainland China that is controlled by Taiwan, you would think they could take them pretty quickly at this point. Um, and Taiwan recently shot down what it identified as a civilian drone over these Kinmen Islands, over an islet, a very small island that was only 2.5 miles away from the Chinese city of Men. And I just want to make clear, there's no signs right now that China is preparing to attack the Kinmen Islands. But I just think this incident with shooting down the drone, it really highlights the danger of the escalated tensions in the region. And that's definitely another option for China uh, besides the full scale invasion. Um, So. And another thing that's important to mention is that the Kinmen Islands, they or Quemoy Islands, as they're also known, they were attacked by Chinese forces during the Second Taiwan Strait Crisis in 1958, and the U.S. military intervened, and military planners were pushing for uh, to use nuclear weapons against China pretty earnestly. So, and that was before China had had nuclear weapons. So that this is just the history of this little these little islands, and, and the the consequence of, uh, what could have happened in that situation. All right. So the next one here, uh, this is from the South China morning post, and I just thought it was interesting. China said that it might use its anti-secession, anti-secession law that it passed back in 2005 as a way to crack down on, uh, what they call Taiwan's, you know, independence forces. So this, this warning came from Chinese foreign minister Wang Yi he said Beijing could invoke its anti-secession law to seek reunification with Taiwan in an escalation of rhetoric over the self-ruled island. And Wang also warned that Washington's pro-Taiwan, anti-Beijing approach might have a subversive impact on U.S.-China ties. And he said this during a meeting with Henry Kissinger, who he met with in New York. Wang Yi is currently in New York for the UN General Assembly, and he held a meeting with, with uh, Kissinger there. Who has been warning against these Cold War style escalations with China and Russia? Of all people, uh, Kissinger's warning against these reckless policies. Next one, more Taiwan provocations. This is from Kyle and Connor again at the Libertarian Institute. U.S. and Canadian warships sailed through the Taiwan Strait on Tuesday. Um, just in in this this is the latest uh, example of this. The U.S. has been sending warships through the Taiwan Strait. About once a month, uh, it's about 12 times a year, has been the average over the past couple of years. The last year of Trump's presidency, 2020, he did it 13 times, which was the most uh, that we've seen, in, at least in recent, in recent years. But um, this is notable because Canada got in on the action here, and this is kind of part of the U.S.'s M.O. They're trying to rally their allies, their European allies and other Western allies like Canada to join them in these provocations against China in the Taiwan Strait and the South China Sea. And it's something that we're going to see more of as we go forward. The British, the French, Germany, they've all sent ships into the region recently. Um, They haven't all, I don't think, Germany did not sail through the Taiwan Strait, France has, but um, it's just something that we're going to see more of as we go on here. All right. The next one, Our Iranian President Ebrahim Raisi, he held a meeting with Pre- French President Emmanuel Macron on Tuesday in New York on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly. So this was about the nuclear deal. Um, it doesn't seem like really any uh, real major progress was made here. But Raisi told Macron that kind of the issue, one of the main issues is over the International Atomic Energy Agency's inquiry into traces of uranium at undeclared Iranian nuclear sites, which we've heard of a lot. This IAEA inquiry has been open for years. The IAEA uh, has not been happy with Iran's explanations, even though these traces are not a proliferation risk. They still won't drop the case there. And Iran has given them documents and stuff, and they said they're not happy with it. And Iran says it's because of Western pressure. So Raisi told Macron, "Quote: The agency's approach toward technical issues must be away from pressure by others, and we believe that achieving an agreement will not be possible without closing Iran's cases. Europe must show in action that its policies are separate from those of the U.S. and does not follow the wishes and policies of the U.S." End quote. Um, so this came after the IAEA's Board of Governors, which is consists of thirty five countries, including the U.S. and. Uh, it's European allies and stuff. They condemned Iran by endorsing a statement that was introduced by the U S Britain France and Germany that criticized Iran over this uranium inquiry. So Iran's unhappy about that. And they're saying uh, that they, they need to settle this as part of an agreement to revive the nuclear deal. But then you have the U.S. I mean, there just it sounds like they've just totally given up and that they're uh, not going to really give any concessions to Iran or, um, just, uh, pursue these negotiations in good faith at all because uh, national security advisor Jake Sullivan again he said that the U.S does not expect expect a breakthrough on the JcpoA to happen on the sidelines of this UN General Assembly. So more just another sign that the nuclear deal isn't going to happen and that sanctions will not be lifted on Iran. And then the last news story that we have here a joint investigation, finds Shireen Abu-Ekla's killing was deliberate. So Abu-Ekla was a Palestinian-American journalist who was killed, gunned down by Israeli forces on May 11th. And a joint investigation by a London-based multidisciplinary research group and a Palestinian rights group has uncovered further evidence that refutes Israel's account that the killing of veteran Al Jazeera Al Al Jazeera journalist Shireen Abu Ekla was a mistake. So, this is Al Jazeera's uh, article about it. We posted this because it was her, it was their uh, journalist. She worked for Al Jazeera. And Israel's um, line here is that they said, oh, it looks like Israeli soldiers probably killed her, but it was an accident and they were returning gunfire. Um, But the probe, it examined the Israeli snipers' precise precise angle of fire. She was shot in the face and concluded that the sniper was able to clearly tell that there were journalists in the area. It also ruled out the possibility of confrontations between Israeli forces and Palestinians in Jenin at the time of the attack. According to the investigation for which Al Jazeera provided material, the Israeli sniper shot for two minutes and deliberately targeted those who tried to rescue Abu Ekla. So she was with other journalists and other people she was wearing a bulletproof vest that said press. They shot her right in the face. Um, it hit her just under the helmet. Uh, two minutes later, sorry, the sniper shot her three times, releasing six bullets the first time. Then after eight seconds, seven more. One of the bullets was the one that killed Abu Ekla, hitting her just under the helmet. Two minutes later, the sniper shot three more bullets to stop efforts to rescue her. Um, So, again, just totally goes against the Israeli narrative. And they've, you know, after they put out this report, the Biden administration said, hey, uh, maybe you guys should review your rules of engagement in the West Bank. And Israel said, no, nobody's going to dictate to us what we have to do. So just totally rejected it. We're not seeing it's not a surprise, but we're not seeing the Biden administration put any pressure on Israel over her killing. Uh, But that's it for the news for today. Just want to remind you again, October 8th at the Department of Justice in Washington, D.C. at 12 p.m. to 3 p.m., there will be a rally for Julian Assange. I will be speaking there. Uh, It's really the most important case of our lifetime if he is extradited and put away, put in prison uh, and convicted for doing journalism because that's what he's been indicted by the Department of Justice for. Um, It's over his uh, WikiLeaks publishing the leaks that were provided by Chelsea Manning, the Afghan and Iraq war logs that expose us war crimes and torture practices. That's why they're trying to put him away. Um, he's a journalist. He did standard journalistic practices by publishing those documents, something we should all look up to and strive for, strive to do ourselves. And so it's just the most important case that's happening and people need to, uh, if, if if it if not for all the propaganda, you know this would be the front page of every paper all the time. They'd be talking about this because of what it would mean for them as, as journalists. Um, but if you want to contact me, you could email the show, news at antiwar.com. You could follow me on Twitter. DM me there. Uh, buy some T-shirts, some antiwar.com shirts and gear. You can find the link in the description. That helps support us too. And uh, But that's it for today. I'll catch you guys tomorrow with some more news. Thanks for listening.